This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon will be teaching the message. So, um, you find out a lot about a person when you travel together in the car. And I have discovered that my wife is a wild woman. If we happen to get into traffic, uh, we'll be traveling along the highway, and all of a sudden, you know, you start seeing up front things slowing down, and then, of course, the red lights, because people are coming to a standstill. And when things start slowing down, Shannon starts like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on, what's going on? And then when the red lights are, she immediately opens up her traffic app and she looks to anticipate what's ahead. And if the road, the highway is in red, terrible. And then she starts figuring out a way to get around it. Where's the nearest exit to get off the road because we cannot be stuck? I mean, that is not going to happen to us. You know, if you wanted to torture my wife, put her in that situation above. If you wanted to really uh, get whatever you wanted out of her, just put her into that for about two minutes, and then she'd be like, okay, that's it. I can't take it. Yes, whatever you need, I'll get it to you. Uh, That's my wife. The other day, well, in August, my family and uh, the Anderson family, we went down to to Tennessee to Lake Norris. Uh, We were traveling back, you know, uh, two cars, and uh, just somewhere south of Richmond, Kentucky on I-75. Why is I-75 always under construction somewhere? Uh, Shannon actually hates that road. I mean, she breaks out in a cold sweat if we get onto I-75. Um, but anyway, we were there, and all of a sudden, we saw the lights, we got into traffic, and, and we were in the left lane, and things were moving slowly, and we were just going on because we were going through this traffic zone. It was all red on the traffic app. There was no way to get off, and my wife was going nuts, and she was, like, freaking out, antsy, all that stuff. And so uh, she saw, she thought that... Uh, the right lane was better, so she saw a gap. She said, get over, get over. The right lane's moving quicker. Get over. And of course, me, you know, uh, I've learned. Happy wife, happy life. I said, sure. Pew. Now, the Andersons were behind us. The Andersons were behind us, which, you know, is what Shannon likes because she's, anyway, or maybe it's Dee Dee. I don't know. But the Andersons were behind us, and so we get into the right lane, and guess what? It turned out to be the bad decision because the right lane was filled with trucks and everything else. It was nowhere off, and uh, the left lane started moving faster. In fact, we remember the lanes kind of split. They had these barriers between the two, and sure enough, there goes Rick and Barb and family by, and uh, Shannon was, was, was in a tizzy. She soon discovered that the Andersons were... 10 miles ahead of us. You're like, how did you know that? Well, she and Barb were sharing locations. And, uh, you know, that's what they do. And I'm like, Shannon didn't like that at all. Which reminds me of a line that comes from the Fellowship of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien's book, where the phrase is, shortcuts make long delays. Shortcuts make long delays. And let me ask you, there's some truth to that. 
There's some truth to that. When you get stuck, you think, I'm going to take a shortcut, and a lot of times uh, that shortcut doesn't end up being a shortcut. It ends up being a long delay where you find yourself in a mess, probably uh, far worse than if you had been patient and worked through the delay that you were going through. And I think this is true for life. You know, true for traffic is, is true for life. Many times uh, in life, we try to shortcut what we know is right. We try to shortcut what uh, is the way we need to go. We try to shortcut it to get to where we want because we think that we can. We can't deal with the delay. We can't deal with the waiting. We can't deal with what we're going through right now. The red lights are on, and we're going to have to slow down. And, and we decide, oh, okay, let's get off the road. And we end up in a mess. We end up in a mess. And it's true for life. It's true for our walk of faith person comes to faith in Christ and begins to live their life seeking to follow God. And as that goes along, the promise of happiness, the promise of blessing, the promise of, of answered prayers, the promise of companionship, the promise of, of being able to have the job that we're looking for because we've dedicated our life to God and He promises that we will have life abundantly. Those things don't seem to be happening in the way we think they need to be happening and in the time they need to happen. And so we decide we're going to take a shortcut. We're going to shortcut God's grace. We're going to shortcut to God's blessing to get what we want when we want it. It's funny that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 kind of addresses this subject. In Romans, if you recall, I've said this a number of times, Romans is Paul's explanation of what we Christians call the good news. And the good news is simply this. God has provided a way by which all people Regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of experience, regardless of what you've done, God has provided a way for all people to be made right with Him. We call that grace. It's a gift undeserved, right? And the means by which He has provided that is by giving of His Son who died on the cross and rose again on the third day, by which therefore the sin penalty that's due on all people is paid for if that person accepted by faith. And so God has provided a way for us to be right with God through faith. And Paul explains this in his letter to the Romans. And in particularly in the first five chapters, he explains it in detail. He, he explains it from the perspective of, of a Jewish person who's received God's Word from the Old Testament and a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, who has received God's communication, he says, through, through, through creation. But he comes to chapter 6, and he poses a question which is interesting. He says, you know, now that I've explained grace, I want you to understand. I want you to understand that grace is not an opportunity to do your own thing, saying, oh, God's grace has got me covered. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, this is how he says it. He says, what shall we say then? Of course, now he's making reflection of what he's explained. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Are we to continue doing our things in our way outside of what God has prescribed for us to live in life? That's what sin is. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? And of course, if you're familiar with the letter to the Romans, you know that Paul will then go on to answer his hypothetical question. He'll say, no way. If you've come to be born again, if you become to have a new identity in God, your new identity in God is orientated towards serving God, not serving death. 
You'll say, it just can't happen. It shouldn't be. But my question is this. Why would he even pose that question in his letter? I mean, why would the temptation to try this why would the temptation to say, uh, shall we sin? Shall I do whatever I want so that God's grace may abound? Why would that even be attractive? If you have received God's blessing and you know that through Jesus you are made right with God through faith and that he calls you to live in a manner that, that is, is honoring to him, why would the temptation even be there for you to do something that would dishonor him? And now we come back to being stuck in the highway, right? Well, the temptation happens when we're living life, and in life things slow down, the brake lights come on, we begin to have to be forced to be patient, we begin to have to be forced to, to make sacrifices and decisions that may cost us. We may be forced to say, you know, following God's way uh, is, is not giving me what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. And in that moment, we think, okay, well, because there's this, this delay, this, this stoppage, this resistance, this opposition to living for God in this life, His Word is hard to live by. What we say, well, I'm going to take a shortcut. And who cares, right? God is love. And a loving God will want me to be happy and choose to give me what makes me happy. And so a loving God and a God full of grace, he's going to kind of wink at this because he's a God who, who, who loves and allows for this because it's grace, right? And so this shortcut is part of God's grace and that's where I'll be. friend, a preacher, kind of came across, had this commentary, and he applied this, this concept that I'm talking about in terms of living as a single person in this world. And named Bob Russell, he said, when you're lonely as a single person, you're so vulnerable. And though it may shock you, even though you have Christian convictions, even though you've made the pledge to be a Jesus follower, even though you have accepted God's grace... He said, you can easily fall into a physical relationship that is wrong. You may decide in advance what your convictions, you, need, you must decide what, in, in advance what your convictions are going to be. He said, I hear all kinds of rationalizations from Christian single people about how the moral standards of our society are low. God is full of grace, a person will say. He can't expect me to be morally pure at my age. We're going to get married anyway. And then there are others who use sex to hang on to a shaky relationship, believing it's better to live in sin than to be lonely. You know, I think we apply this to all various aspects of our life. We apply it to our language. We apply it to our entertainment choices, our spending and our earning of money and our child-rearing and on waiting for God to answer prayer. Many times we struggle to honor God, the grace giver, by our life because we, in effect, are struggling with waiting. <laughs> See, in living as one who is saved by God's grace, it can be very difficult to honor God who gives us the grace in our life. It's hard, but it's possible. In fact, God provides us all the necessary resources. In fact, He provides us supernatural resources in order to live lives that honor Him. 
but it's God's will for your life. If you're a Jesus follower, this is the way God has called you to live. He redeemed you, he saved you, he bought you out of the slavery of death to enter into service of him. And you may have a tough, but it's no tougher than the individuals of the Bible and in the characters that we've come to know as we've been journeying through this series, through the story of Ruth. If you remember in the first week in Ruth chapter 1, we discovered that God is with us even in our bitter seasons. Story of Naomi and Ruth, ladies who are widowed and destitute in effect, who even though in their bitterness, remember Naomi said, call me Mara, call me bitter, Ruth chapter 1, in their bitterness, we recognize from the story that God was with them. God led them from that season of bitterness and brought them back to Bethlehem. If you remember, I said, Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so in Ruth chapter 1, we saw that, the, that God's grace means that God is with us in our better season. Then last week, Tim spoke about Ruth chapter 2, and we were told of the story in which Naomi and Ruth trying to eke out a living there in Bethlehem. Ruth did what poor folk do. She went to the fields that were being harvested, and she ended up going to the fields of one of the har- that was being harvested to, to glean from the leftovers of the harvest, and she went to the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz happened to be a relative of Naomi's past husband, And Boaz showed grace to Ruth and to Naomi. Boaz had been blessed. He was a wealthy man. And he blessed and was kind, honoring Ruth for her kindness to Naomi to stick with her through difficult times. And so Tim reiterated the the point that, that not only is God with us by grace in our seasons of bitterness, but but. God's grace inspires grace in others. As we have been blessed, we can be a blessing to others. As, and, and that catches on, uh, the pay it forward kind of thing. And so now we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3 told a story where uh, we come to a point where we're going to see that even in pressure times, God's grace means that we're called to honor God, the grace giver. And we're going to see this happen in the life of of, of Naomi and of Ruth and of Boaz. And it's going to serve as an example for us, because these folks are ordinary folks, serve as an example of, of how God has called us and provides for us so that we can honor Him in life. Ruth chapter 3, and I'm going to kind of read through the story uh, a little bit here, and just just take a moment, pay attention, listen. Uh, It's it's just a fascinating story. Verse 1, Ruth chapter 3, it says, One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Naomi was feeling the pressure. She was worried about her future. Her situation was desperate 
And because Ruth had attached herself to her by commitment, not only to, to her, but to her God, Naomi's God, Ruth was in a precarious position also. If you're familiar with that culture, you know that as a widow, with no father or, or husband as protector and provider, these women were in a dangerous position, living off the generosity of those who were kind to them. They were in a precarious position, a position, you could say, where following God, all of a sudden, the lights on the highway were, flare, were lighting up, and they were facing resistance and difficulty and wondering, is God going to provide, right? And so Naomi comes up with a plan. We're going to go into this in verse 2. It's a God-honoring plan, and it involved unmarried relative Boaz, who had shown kindness to Ruth and Naomi, a man of honor, Boaz, a middle-aged man who was single, a middle-aged man that was probably clueless to Ruth in a romantic way. I'm guessing he probably was thinking to himself, A, I'm too old, B, I'm not even going to think that way because I don't want to dishonor her. Verse 2 says, Now Boaz, this is Naomi saying to Ruth, Now Boaz, with whom with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Here's a picture of a threshing floor, an ancient threshing floor. So this is the situation. They're all gathering. They bring the barley in, and they put that on the floor, and they beat it. They run over it with a mat. But what they're doing is from the, the harvested barley, they're trying to get the, the grain to fall down. They would collect the grain and then grind it to make bread so that they can live on. So this is the winnowing, the winnowing floor. She said, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. Go down here, but don't let him, Boaz, know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. This is a sharp lady, Naomi. She knows the best way, to, you know, to get to the guys, making sure he's well fed, right? Yeah, you ladies know that. She said, wait till Boaz is eaten, merry from drinking wine and celebration of the day's work of winnowing barley. Verse 4, and she says, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Verse 5, I will, tell, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Now, this is gutsy on, on Ruth's part, too. She's kind of putting herself out there, right? It's going to be dark. She's going to be alone with this guy, kind of vulnerable, and she's going to kind of make a move, uh, communicate uh, her intentions that... Hey, I like you, I like you a lot, kind of thing, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and put herself out there. And also, she's following the, the, the advice of Naomi, right? And let's be honest, the stories tell us that Naomi hasn't had a great track record regarding decisions. Uh, she's like, I'm bitter, don't call me bitter, God is, is not... So, this is a great, great act of trust and faith that Ruth places in Naomi's plan, Verse 6, so she, decided, she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lay down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. And you're like, what's all this uncovering feet thing? It probably has to do with the fact that marriage was symbolized by covering. In, in that, that tradition, if you cover... Uh, you know, Ezekiel, there's a, a reference to the, the covering of, of marriage. And so this is a, is this a way to, to basically communicate, hey, um, I'm interested in you. 
and I'd like to have you pursue me and be married. And I can say this, and we can kind of call this, this is like serious flirting, um, but it's a, I can say this based on the reaction that Boaz has in the next verses, and, and these are the verses that are going to be up on the screen for us to follow, because I believe they are a microcosm of the entire passage. They kind of summarize everything that I think we need to pay attention to. It says, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. I mean, if your feet are uncovered and you get cold, you've got to wake up in the night, right? He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. <laughs> Here it is. Make a pledge to me. I want you to know I'm interested in you marrying me. Now, this principle of guardian redeemer, Tim talked a little bit about last week, but it's basically uh, instituted by the law of God that if a woman lost her husband, her brother was to marry her, and it was a means in which it would protect her from destitution and being vulnerable to harm. And we might say, that's kind of crazy, but that was within that culture. Now, we know that, that Naomi's husband and, and Ruth's husband had no other brothers, and therefore this claim would fall to the next of kin, a cousin. And Boaz was one of those kind of cousins who could, who could claim to step in on behalf of Ruth's husband and claim not only Ruth, but also the property so that it would stay within the family. So this is what he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. Wow, I didn't know you felt that way about me. That's what he's saying. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, the kindness being taking care of Naomi, who is his relative. You have not run after younger men whether rich or poor. So we know, obviously, by that statement that, that, that Boaz thought his days of marriage were over. He was too old and unattractive or whatever, but that's what he says. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid, he says. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And make note of that phrase. Ruth, a woman of noble character. Now, we know this, if you, you don't really know, while this sounds rather romantic, it's very tricky. Let's just think about this. Both Ruth and Boaz at this moment had opportunity to compromise God's word. First of all, it was dark. <laughs> She's lying right there with them. He's been making merry, celebrating the harvest. She's right there, and she's made a, an, a, a pass at him, you would say. She's basically said, hey, I like you. I want you to marry me. Yet, in all of this, in this moment of pressure and opportunity, this time in which they could have shortcut what God's plan was for their life, instead, they honored God throughout. Boaz treats Ruth nobly. He says, I hear what you say. I appreciate what you've done. I'm now going to follow the legal process. In fact, as you read on, you'll discover that Boaz is going to say, you know, I'm not first in line when it comes to making a claim to be your kinsman redeemer. What I'm going to do is I'm going to check with him and see first if he wants to, to make that claim. And if he doesn't, I will marry you. I will marry you. 
And then what he says is, is that you stay here quietly and then slip away so no one can see you, so no one can think anything inappropriate has happened because it hasn't. And he blesses her with a huge amount of grain that has just been harvested to take back to Naomi. And then they wait. And what we see throughout is this, is that those who have been blessed by God's grace, even in the tricky situations, even moments in which they have opportunity to seek their own way and to, to jump to what they inevitably saw was going to happen in terms of God's will for their life and God's blessing for them, they choose not to shortcut grace not to shortcut God's Word. They maintain their character. They honor God in their conduct. He doesn't touch her the entire night and treats her honorably. And so what this story shows me is that living by God's grace means honoring God, the grace giver. Living by God's grace means honoring God, the grace giver. You know, we talk about grace as a gift. And we talk about it being free for us. We don't have to pay the price because Jesus paid it for us, right? We say that. And we're appreciative of that, I think, when we come to know Christ. But let's just remember this. Just because something is free doesn't mean it's cheap. Free means someone else paid it for me. And what the Bible tells us is that the free gift of God's grace came at a major cost. It was not easy for Jesus to go to the cross. We read in the Gospels that he agonized at the thought on the night in which he was betrayed on that Thursday night in the garden. We say Jesus went to God sweating profusely under stress like as if blood was dripping down from him. And he cried out to God, if there is another way, please provide it. Take this cup of agony that I know I'm going to have to go through away, please. But not my will, Lord, but yours be done. You see, the cost of the cross was immense. Not only physically, the brutal experience of being crucified, which is really death by asphyxiation. You think about it, you, you don't. It's, it's death by having your lungs filled with fluid hung up on a tree. That's the kind of death the crucifixion really is. But not only is it, crucif is, it, is it excruciating physically, but here is the creator of life, the giver of life, choosing to lay down his life. And the spiritual pain of receiving the punishment undeserved. I cannot imagine. The cross cost God an eternal price. And yet it was given to us, made available to us, so that we might be made right with God through faith. And what's the appropriate response for that? I was taught... The appropriate response to a gift is what? Thank you. I often tell the story. When I was a boy, my friend and I decided to take a shortcut through some people's property because, you know, that's what we did. So we were trespassing. We went through the gate. And as we're walking along, we hear the terrific, the horrific sound 
of the dogs being set on us for trespassing. It was appropriate. And so a couple of dogs were chasing us. Now here's the thing about escaping the wrath or the teeth of dogs. You have to be fast, but you have to be faster than your friend, <laughs> of which I was. And I remember running full sprint. My friend was behind me, and I jumped the fence that, that, that was there. I mean, one leap, uh, Didi the spring. And uh, I looked around, and I saw my friend trying to do the same thing, and literally, it's still in my mind, all I see him jumping, and all I see is this big dog's teeth, and it latched right onto his backside, and he was like, oh, something bit me. <laughs> and I remember on the other side of the fence looking at that, and I'm going, yes! I was so thrilled to escape. Why? Because the the teeth of those monsters were massive, and I didn't have four puncture holes in my butt, right? Now, let's replay that whole experience, and let's start off. My friend and I are walking through the gate, and we hear dogs, and this time, they're not big German shepherd type with big teeth. No, they're these little puny little chihuahuas, and they're little, you know, ankle biters. <laughs> totally different kind of response, right? A, we would not run. B, we would have laughed. C, we would have just booted those dogs out of the way. <laughs> Here's the story. The bigger the teeth, the greater the appreciation of the escape. And if you understand the cost of grace, if you understand God's wrath poured out not on us, but on His Son as a substitute, if you understand and appreciate the size of the teeth that you have been saved from, the appropriate response is gratitude. And that gratitude needs to be applied in our life. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Rick Anderson's favorite verse, he shares that often, says, you know, in view of God's mercy, in view of understanding God's grace, let your bodies be de dedicated to serving God. Let your conduct be described as living and holy sacrifice for God, the kind that He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. This means that by living by God's grace is not copying the behavior and customs of this world, but by letting God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn not, you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Your life needs to be a thank you to God because grace honors the grace giver. Let, let me share with you a story, wrap things up that I think captures it beautifully. So I was reading about a pastor, his name's Randy Frazier, and Randy was telling a story about a time he was visiting uh, a man, visiting this gentleman, and uh, he was in his office, and in his office he noticed a picture of this man and his wife. It was, it was really a cool picture, and he looked at the picture and says, ah, nice picture. And he was looking at the picture, and he turned around and he saw the man standing there in his office, and the man was crying. He was crying. 
And Randy said, why are you crying? And the man said, you know, that picture, let me tell you about it. He said, there was a time in our marriage when I was unfaithful to my wife. And she found out, and she was deeply hurt, and she was going to leave me, take the kids, and leave me. And I came to my senses and realized what a mistake I had made, and I immediately went out, and I ended the affair, and I went to my wife in total brokenness and repentance, and I knew I didn't deserve her grace and her kindness and her forgiveness. I knew I didn't deserve for her to take me back as her husband, but she did, and she forgave me. And he said, this picture was taken shortly after that. And so when I see the picture, I see a woman who forgave me and gave me back my life. So you say, nice picture. I say, that's the day I remember my life was given back to me. You know, the Bible is described as a mirror. It says, if you look into the Bible, it's like looking in a mirror. It's God's Word gives you a reflection of exactly who you are. And in many ways, maybe this mirror is like a picture frame. And in the mirror, what you see is the story of God and the offering uh, of God from the words of those who have testified what God has done in this world. What you hear, what you see is the story of you and God, and it's a story of grace. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that when Didi believes in Him, Didi will not perish but have everlasting life. It's a picture in which you can look and see you and God and know that once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was dead, but now I'm made alive. Once I had no hope, but now I've been given hope. Once I had no direction and purpose that was meaningful, but now I've been given a spiritual resource by which I can live a life that God is God-honoring and that redeems every small part of my life with a purpose that makes a difference. And so when I look into the Bible, when I look into the Testament of Scripture, there's a picture there, me and God. And the question I ask then is, in that picture, the picture of me and the picture of you in that, what is it? Is it, hmm, nice picture? Or is it, that's a picture that reminds me of the day in which I was given my life back. And the God that I serve brought me back. He didn't have to, but he did. That's why it's called grace, because I was undeserving. Even if, I, even if I grew up in church and did all the right things, or even if I was, a, was, you know, a crazy person and lived like a crazy man, bottom line is I didn't deserve, I didn't deserve what God has given to me, a gift of great cost. It's the day that I got my life back. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz show us that grace and living by grace means honoring the grace giver. 
It means looking at what God has given us and say, because of this, I want my life to be a thank you and honor to the grace giver. And it means looking to please Him. We talk about love all the time. Love is this. No, love starts with asking what is pleasing to God. And even though it may be hard, you know, this thing of obedience and living a moral, in a moral character way that makes choices regarding my sexual decisions, regarding my, my money decisions, regarding my, my mouth, how I say things and how I treat people and how I operate as a husband and as I, how I am as a, as a parent and how I am as a worker and how I am as a person in this world. Uh, all of that has to, has to honor God, the grace giver, and that's the starting point of living a life of love. God's grace received means that we have to honor God, the grace giver. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the story that we're able to see, and I ask that you would help each of us who have made a commitment to you to honor you with our life, because as we understand it, you have given us life, and I'm just so appreciative of it. The day I remember and I came to terms with just understanding the implication and the blessings of your grace, um, I have no words but gratitude Lord, I, I pray that um, this message will sink home to all that are here that have chosen to follow you, that they might look to ask, what of my life do I need to honor you? And, and maybe repent of, of decisions to take shortcuts, making the assumption that we, we know better even though uh, we really don't. And Lord, those that are here that, that have made a faith commitment, I pray you speak to them and, and help them to see that uh, grace is offered up to all. And as Jesus said, come, take my, my yoke for my, my burden is light, that living for you is, is the best way to live, a way in which we can live to honor the grace giver, our God and Lord and Savior. Pray this in the name of Jesus, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.